Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the polar vortex at Bethel University, it's election shock therapy, fleece edition. <laughs> I'm definitely it's chilly out there, guys. Yes, it is. Yeah. I um, now we live, we have a a very picturesque campus. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we're right on the side of a lake, kind of nice wooded mm-hmm. lake. Uh, there's some osprey nestling in the trees. It's 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 quite pleasant. Um, and uh, right now. <laughs> it's really cold. Uh, it was negative 14 this morning. Air temperature, not counting the wind chill. When I was walking across campus, uh, my beard oh. froze to my scarf before I got inside the wow. building. That was bracing, um, mm. and exfoliating, as it turns out. Wow, yeah. So, yeah, my my bit. wife put it very eloquently. Of you know, you're walking along and it feels like your skin is about to like peel off your face. It's mm-hmm. about right. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, welcome to our horror movie. I'm I'm Chris Moore, and joining me in my office today are... Andy Ramson. And Matt Cookham. And guys, uh, we are pleased to say that we do have results from Iowa. You know, it it was so nice. I, you know, logged into, you know, my computer, and the results started streaming in. Everything was normal. And there was something... From New Hampshire. Hampshire. Yeah, it was great. It was great. It's not Iowa. How smug is the New Hampshire Democratic Party right now? Enormously. Uh, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> so we've been through two state primaries uh, now, and yep. I'm pleased to tell you that definitively Donald Trump has won both of them. Yes. Uh, on the close. Republican side. That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'd like you clarify that. Well, <laughs> well the there's an argument to be made that he might have won the Democratic primary <laughs> yeah, as well. Actually, we'll get yeah, to that yeah, in a second. Depending on how you frame it. So, One of the occupational hazards of being a political scientist is you're on, or at least in my case, I'm on a lot of political po- politicians' email lists. And so How's that working I'm out on, for you? Um, I mostly delete them. But but Tom Emmer did send me a glo- – who's the Republican rep for my district – um, sent an email talking about how what a great victory Trump had won in Iowa. And I thought, <laughs> uh, yeah, over Joe Walsh and Bill Weld. And, you know, like, okay, good. I mean, that's something, I guess. But um, is this, I mean, like, that's not anything he needs to worry about in any meaningful way, is no, it? No, not, not at all. In fact, okay. it's not even clear why they're bothering because, like, in places like Minnesota, for example, I mean, he's the only one that are even allowing on the ballot. So why even bother to have it? It's almost not even worth mentioning. No, it's not. Yeah. Not really. I mean, Joe and Joe Walsh and Bill Weld are just not viable candidates at all. Right. Right. I think Walsh has actually dropped out, but I heard that secondhand. So. Which is interesting because at one point in time, Bill Weld was a kind of serious political actor in the, in yeah, the, in the Republican 90s. Party. Yeah. 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 But he's, so. he's very, I mean, he was... He's from that old breed of liberal Republicans, which right? Don't exist much anymore. So the George H. W. Bush kind of. I mean, but to the left of George H. W. For Bush, for sure. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, you know, just you know, he was northeastern Republican. Mm-hmm. And just yeah, They're, those kind of people are really not in the part, Republican Party today, right? As Mitt Romney yeah. is <laughs> becoming well aware of. Yeah, and Mitt Romney's way more conservative than Bill Weld. Oh, I mean, absolutely. So it's just, and even Mitt Romney is kind of out of step. So yeah. I mean, Bill Weld also was like the libertarian vice presidential candidate last time. So that's also kind of weird. 
Well, it would be weird if we spent this entire podcast talking about the Republican primary. And um, Bill Weld. And Bill Weld. <laughs> yes. This is the most media attention Bill Weld has gotten in this Yeah, race. this is – I hope that this will get linked on his, um, his website. Let me give you guys just a quick little rundown of uh, the two uh, results we have so far. So yes. um, in Iowa – we have a right. very narrow win. I'm going to do uh, just percentage of vote yep. in both these mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. A very narrow win for Pete Buttigieg, who got 26.2% of the vote. Bernie Sanders got 26.1% of the vote. So yep. nearly uh, just a tie in Iowa. Elizabeth Warren was third at 18%. Joe Biden was fourth at 15.8%. And then Amy Klobuchar comes in at 12.3%. And here's where I just want to say, as we want to do on this podcast, we were, I, I say we, I'll use, I'll use I words. I was wrong about Amy Klobuchar because we had said, or I had said prior mm-hmm. to uh, the Iowa and New Hampshire primaries, that Klobuchar was investing heavily in Iowa yep. and really yep. needed to do well in the neighboring state of Iowa to give her uh, her candidacy any kind of legs. And she goes out and finishes fifth at 12.3%. Yep. Flash forward to the New Hampshire primaries, and she gets 19.8%, almost 20%, and finishes third. Mm-hmm. So... Klobuchar has, as, and I, I feel it hurts me to say this, but as Chris Gerritz, our historian friend across the hall, right. said, she has clomentum. Oh, yeah. It's or the perhaps charge. It's yeah. the clobacharge. Oh, I'm good. <laughs> oh, I feel gross I saying know. that. It's just, it's so wrong. But, okay, so to go back to the top, Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire gets 25.7%. Pete Buttigieg gets 24.4%. Again, very, very close. We, uh, yeah. we Basically, yeah. these two gentlemen, Sanders and Buttigieg, yeah. are nearly tying for first place in both of these first two states. And then Klobuchar comes in, like we said. Uh, yeah. Warren takes a clear step back from 18% in Iowa down to 9% yeah. in, um, in New Hampshire. And Joe Biden finishes fifth. At 8.4%. And yeah. then there are a number of candidates in both cases that um, scrape in with like three or four, two or 3%. Those people yeah. include Tom Steyer, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang. Everybody else is getting like, you know, not even this level of physical right. significance. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, worth noting, uh, one of the people spending the most on their presidential campaign on the Democratic side is Michael Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even on the ballot in these first two states he's skipping them entirely he's gearing up for super tuesday in a couple of weeks and now he's spending a lot of money in new hampshire gearing up for the general election really yeah he started setting up offices after the primary that seems like yeah or (laughs) a a gross misuse of resources um is it even 57 billion i mean it doesn't now i'm going to do something somebody might as well make money off him right I'm going to do something which we strive to be very aware of on this on this podcast, which is we're not pundits, but I'm going to ask you to a very pundity question, and I'm going to ask you to steer away from being pundits and say, what can we say as political scientists about this question? So good luck with that. Thanks, Chris. But um, well, let's, let's talk about winners and losers from New Hampshire. Okay, we're, yeah. we're, we're two primaries into this. We've awarded approximately 0.5% of the total number of delegates that are going to be right. allocated in the Democratic right. primaries. Can we say anything about who's won or who is winning out of mm-hmm. Iowa and New Hampshire headed into Nevada and South Carolina? 
I mean, you know, in some ways, Sanders is, you know, the clear national yeah. front runner, right? He, yeah. you know, he mm-hmm. basically, you could say the he tied. Say right yeah, now. I mean, the national yeah. polls, he, you know, you could say he tied in Iowa. That's yep, a safe sure. thing to say. Um, he did win outright by a very narrow margin in New Hampshire. Yep. yep. Um, and, and yeah, he's leading in the national polls. He's yep. sitting on a nice, you know, chunk of money right now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, he's locked up, you know, not only his base, they're not leaving, right? They're sticking around. He's mm-hmm. locked up the um, the most liberal voters. Right. Um, he's got campaign operations um, across the Super Tuesday states. So he's well positioned, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And yep. you don't have to be a pundit to say that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that's all true. I think the concern with Sanders is you know, how high can he go, right? I mean, yeah. it's some of the same things we heard about Donald well, Trump. I believe he time. believes in legalization of marijuana, so potentially yeah. quite high. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> there you go. Um, but, you know, I think the the concern with him is, like, can he increase that base, right? I mean, so he has that base. Mm-hmm. He's probably not going to dip too low as long as he stays in. But, you know, can he move beyond that? And so, for example, I mean, like, mm-hmm. last time he won New Hampshire quite overwhelmingly, it was just basically just him and Hillary Clinton for all practical intents and purposes. Um, and this time he only gets twenty five percent versus like sixty percent. Is it so? Na- that's that's a big sh- shift. Is it analogous to what you just said, Andy? To say that how, to ask the question: How many pe- for how many people is Sanders their second choice? Yeah, I think that's a, an important thing to bring up, and I'm not sure that that's a big number. Okay, so, like that's that's I think one of his concerns is is he is he a fallback or like if if you're a Buttigieg voter, where would you go next? Right and right and the instinct is probably Bloomberg. Klobuchar, Biden are more likely. Right? Yeah. It, it is interesting warm. to note. I mean, if you look at the the polling um, averages for Sanders going into New Hampshire, um, he basically pulled. He basically came in right on his polling numbers. Right, he didn't mm-hmm. under. You know, yeah. he didn't underperform. He didn't overperform, right. uh, which suggests that the people who you know support Sanders, they're going to stick with him. But he's right. really not gaining anyone who is undecided. Those right. people tended to break other directions. Uh, most notably for for Amy mm-hmm. Klobuchar. Do we have uh, any ex- explanation? for that why some candidates seem to have more of a higher ceiling or uh, some people have a firmer floor in terms of their level of support we saw this in the yeah, 2016 yeah. election with Donald Trump right. um, he never really captured the hearts of the Republican Party until deep in the general election yeah. uh, but he had this core group of supporters who really right. were with him from the very right. beginning is there any kind of theory around why some candidates seem to vary in that regard I mean I think with Sanders is he's He's so well-known, right? Um, and so the fact that he's been so well-known um, means you kind of have an idea of where his – what his support level is going to look mm. like over time, right? Okay. Someone like Pete Buttigieg uh, – can't pronounce his name <laughs> – or Amy Klobuchar, right? These are relatively unknown figures and people are still trying yeah. to figure them out. I mean Bernie yeah. Sanders has a brand and people know yeah. it, right? right. Um, and so when you have a lot of these you know, people going candidate shopping um, you know, in the retail politics that is Iowa and New Hampshire in the primary season – um, you know, they're they're checking out the other options, right? And so you don't really know where their floor or ceiling is. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why you see these candidates, um, you know, who seem to have, you know, relatively long shots staying in, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You couple that with the Democratic primary sort mm-hmm. of um, – um, you know, rules that, you know, basically allow for the allocation of these delegates um, to even right. candidates who don't get that much of the vote. Right. Um, they can, you know, go through a whole primary yeah. season accumulating delegates. And so between that and between people, you know, checking them out for the first time, there's just not a lot of incentive for some of these people to to bow out. Yeah. 
So, and, and yeah, I think the Sanders, the relevant point is he's just such a polarizing figure, right? Yeah. And so, like, mm-hmm. you know, do you really, as a party, want to nominate a Democratic Socialist, right? He's very proud of using that term, and that's very appealing to a certain group of people. But does that have an ability to kind of expand that group of people, right? Can that can that win an American election? And I think there's a lot of people in the Democratic Party who are nervous about that. So late-breaking people, people who are on the fence, don't seem to be going towards Sanders. I mean, if you like Sanders, you might really like him. You're really in his court. But if, if you haven't already made that calculation, you, it doesn't seem like those people are thinking about Sanders or someone else. It's more like, you know, do I go with Buttigieg? Do I go with Biden? Do I go with Klobuchar? Who's the more sort of plausible governing alternative, right? And it seems like that's what those people are debating a little more. And even Warren, I'd throw in that group. I mean, even Warren is less out there or at least perceived as that by people than than Sanders. I mean, she's, you know, more traditional, even though she has some very, you know, progressive policy. Well, let me, well, she's at least more pragmatist, if not more For traditional. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me throw something out. Both well, traditional are... in the sense that she's a, she's an actual Democrat, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. so Bernie Sanders is, I mean, he's a socialist who, other than when he's running for the its presidential nomination, is not a member of the Democratic Party. Right. right? He's an um, independent who causes so, with the Democrats. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Let me uh, – you both of you are far more steeped in theory than I am. But back uh, a million years ago when I was an undergraduate, I mm-hmm. read uh, Louis Hartz's Liberal Tradition in the United States. Can um, Oh, both of you are giving that. me the eyes like, <laughs> oh, no. That's not one of the ones I let, let me pitch this uh, Louis Hartz's fundamental thesis to you. Okay. Tell me if you pitch think it. this is still true. So he was writing yeah. this back in the um, – gosh, I think the book probably goes back to the, back to the 70s. Um, sure. But uh, what Hartz wrote – um, and Hartz was sort of drew a lot from uh, from Tocqueville, mm-hmm. um, and he argued that in the in in the wake of the World War II and in the midst of the Cold War, mm-hmm. that because of the way the United States was founded and because of its um, lack of an aristocracy, lack of a feudal mm-hmm. tradition, slavery is a big problem for him, by the way. Right. But for because a lack of these sort of hierarchical social institutions, which defined a lot of Europe, the United States was uniquely inoculated against socialism. That socialism could never gain purchase or traction in the United States in the ways that it had in European countries or in African countries or elsewhere in the world, um, and we were sort of this was a this was a um, something that we would always be far more reactive against than uh, most other developed democracies would be. Do you think that there's? I, I don't need you to assess hearts right now, but let's acknowledge the fact that socialism has long been a dirty word in the United States mm-hmm. in ways that it hasn't been in European circles or elsewhere. Yeah. Um, is that coming to an end? Is America potentially becoming developing in a way that makes it more some com- comfortable with concepts of socialism, or are we do we remain um, deeply ant- antithetical or deep, deep antith- antipathy? Yeah, I mean, that? well, a couple things. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the reasons why the United States, you know, was so adamantly opposed to socialism, you know, I mean, I think is somewhat associated with. Um, how the United States first got familiar with socialism, right? Um, Soviet sure. Union and the Cold War, mm-hmm. right? So there's mm-hmm. a lot of sort of non-philosophical reasons, um, you know, fear, you know, political ideology, et cetera, um, to, you know, take issue with socialism. Um, you know, if we're, we're going to go back to Tocqueville, and I don't know how Hartz interprets him, um, you know, Tocqueville also writes of um, this impulse that you see in America towards um, people demanding equality, right? Uh, demanding um, even economic equality um, and the leveling of the playing playing field, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. and and even um, hoping that government can be used mm-hmm. to institute a kind of socio economic 
economic equality. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think, I don't know, it depends on how you take Tocqueville, right? But I yeah. think, you know, there's, you can, Tocqueville is, has a very complex understanding of, you know, the American experiment as it was occurring, you know, yeah. in the middle of, of, you know, that century. And so I think, I think Tocqueville in some ways, you know, foresees, um, this movement towards people clamoring for, um, for redistribution of wealth. But yeah, I, yeah. I think in some ways I wonder if like the divide is like socialism is a dirty word, but doing socialist things maybe isn't right. right. Like, I mean, yeah. um, I still socialism wonder, by any other name. Well, <laughs> right. Sweet. Yeah. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I was just talking about this in my African politics class before I came over here to a podcast. Right. And we we're talking about colonialism. Right. And of course, you know, we're talking in the African context, we don't really see us colonialism, but us did, colonial-like activities elsewhere. We just didn't call it colonialism, right? Because, you know, what we're doing in the Philippines or in Cuba, right? Or Mm -hmm. even more recently in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? That's not colonialism, right? It's like, well, okay. But it has a lot of similar characteristics, right? right? And and I think in the same way, like when you look at what Franklin Roosevelt does in the New Deal, for example, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. Like, what are you doing, right? Government is, is now providing jobs and running industries and things like that, right? But we don't want to call it that, right? So we call it something a little different. Um, and even things like Social Security and Medicare, I mean, what are these, right? right? Um, they are very similar to what we would call socialist programs elsewhere, right? Um, but we don't call them that in the United States because that's not a nice word, right? So I think, you know, I'm not sure we're so completely uncomfortable with these ideas but we still don't like that word for reasons that Matt pointed out. I think that's a fair interpretation. I will say that I think Hartz goes further than that. And let me just clarify. I just pulled it off my shelf. We Louis Hartz wrote, wrote his book uh, in uh, 1955. <laughs> so he's writing okay. this even at the very beginning of the Cold oh, okay. War yeah, yeah. and really before the Civil Rights Movement, which is okay. probably one of the reasons he doesn't take seriously the institution of slavery as a system of hierarchy in the United okay. States, which he really should. It's a real flaw of his argument. Mm-hmm. But I will mm-hmm. say this. Um, Hartz would argue for a stronger version of this, which is not just that we don't like the term socialism, but rather even things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, other kinds of government programs just don't go as deeply or comprehensively in the United States as similar kinds of programs would go in uh, in European countries. Think about national health care systems, for example. The United States is struggling to get something even Mm -hmm. approaching a national health care system, which is a foregone conclusion in a number of European countries. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Okay. So. That's Sanders. We can say that Sanders is certainly a winner at this point um, by any kinds of metrics that we would reasonably pay attention to. But he faces some serious challenges going forward, right? Like what? Um, Well, um, I mean, we've talked about it already. He has a certain, you know, know, association with this term socialist, uh, right, which is his own doing. Um, He, you know, does he he does have, you know, some support amongst minorities, but it's not huge. Um, he does have a campaign organization and a decent amount of money, but, but his main draw is from, you know, very liberal people, you know, Democrats who characterize themselves as very liberal. Mm -hmm. Um, and they only Mm -hmm. comprise, you know, a, a plural, maybe not even a plurality of the party, uh, perhaps at best, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 or 30%, um, at most. Right. Um, and his appeal sharply drops off amongst people who consider themselves somewhat liberal or even moderate. Right. right? Um, and it's just too late for him to change his stripes on that. Oh, and, and, and he doesn't want to. And he's, he's a true believer. Yeah, he is. And he's yeah, probably he not going to give that up. Even if he did get the nomination, you know, his yeah. ability yeah. to sort of pivot towards the middle, I think, is going to be quite limited. So I don't, and I don't know if he tries. To, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Try, I think he's, he's like Chris said, he's enough of a true believer that he's just going to say, no, this is what we need. This is what we're going to do. Yep. And join me. 
right? I mean, or not. Um, but this is, you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not changing and, for you. And he also thinks that's right. the best strategy too, yeah. right? He thinks yeah. that this is going to generate the enthusiasm yep. Yep. Um, that's going to drive out people to, to really come out and vote for him, right? And that, that's right. kind of the inverse of the Trump strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're going to, yeah. we're not going to pivot towards the middle and try right. to get the majority of the country on board. Right. We're going to try to drive out a certain turn out demographic, these people. right? Yep, it's the turnout model. So the other thing, I guess, um, kind of why is this a... What are the problems for Sanders going forward? And I think what becomes a problem for him is if the field narrows a lot soon, which isn't happening yet, which is good for him, actually, Mm -hmm. um, because you can keep winning primaries at 25 percent, right? If there are are plenty of people in the field. But if you get Biden knocked out and Warren knocked out, right, and, you know, Klobuchar knocked out or something like that, right, like then it gets harder, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If you're down to like just one or two other people. I think it gets harder for him to keep winning these primaries. And then the narrative starts shifting. And then people remember like, oh, yeah, he's a 78-year-old socialist, right? Do we really want that? Um, So I think that's an an issue for him. Yeah, and then the thing is, I mean, we're we're post-New Hampshire and we have not – any significant winnowing of the field. We actually have one more moderate now, right, who's, oh, who's jumped we're, in. Oh, we're going to get to that in a know, second. Amy Klobuchar, right? Yeah. And then yeah. and then we'll have Bloomberg jump in at Super Tuesday. So we're, yeah. we, we have Michael Bennett see. is out, though. I'm just going to say. All right. Well, hold well, on. Hold on, guys. Uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get the drops in a second. Andy's so Finally. excited to talk about Michael Bennett. Um, but um, so anybody else, w- w- definitive winners, <laughs> we have to say that people who come out of these two front two races – having improved their stakes. And what we mean yeah. by that is this is all an expectations game. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's a huge problem delegates for, for don't matter at this point. Really. Yeah, delegates right. don't matter. We've awarded maybe one half of 1% of yeah, the delegates. Yeah. So mm-hmm. this is that's irrelevant. But what we're talking about is like how people have played relative to their expectations. Yep. And that does matter in terms of fundraising yep. and in terms of media coverage. Mm-hmm. And people who've improved mm-hmm. their opportunities for fundraising and for media coverage are people like Pete Buttigieg, who yep. functionally statistically tied Bernie Sanders in Iowa and New Hampshire, yep. and Amy Klobuchar. Um, who came in a strong third in New Hampshire at 19.8%. There was a huge drop-off between her and the fourth-place finisher, Elizabeth Warren, at 9.2%. So... She uh, really outperformed her polls, which I think is the reason exactly. she was perceived as having done so well because she was like at around 10% in the polls. And, and she picks up 19% right, so, of the vote. So yeah. um, Klobuchar, while she's certainly not a front-runner at this point, <laughs> that kept her campaign alive. And allows her to move to Nevada and probably all the way to Super Tuesday and stay in the race and see what happens on Super Tuesday before she has to make a call about whether to stay in or get out. Yeah, I think she's this this buys her Super <clears throat> Tuesday, but it's you know, I when I think about this historically, I just like yeah, I'm skeptical, right? Because I mean we've had a number of these sort of narratives about people who, oh, did unexpectedly well in New Hampshire, you know, John Kasich finishing second to Trump in twenty sixteen, yep. um, John Huntsman, right, back in the day. Like, mm-hmm. like I don't know. And most of them end up you know, you remember about those guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. They didn't go a whole lot of anywhere afterwards. And I the, I think one of the concerns for Klobuchar in particular is that I just don't know how much organization she has. So yeah, I would – Very know, little. As, as her constituent, I mean, I actually do think she's one of the, the best choices the Democratic Party has by far, actually. But I'm just – I'm a little pessimistic about her ability to extend it. We'll right. see. I hope yeah. I mean, if, you know, if – in a world in which she did happen to have a lot of organization and money yeah. in the Super Tuesday states, I think yeah. she'd have a pretty good shot. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things, that, I mean, you know, the media narrative itself, right, and this this sort of concept of a momentum, I think, you know, it's, <laughs> it's so yeah, – it's, it's so superficial in one sense, right? And so this is where, you know, we, we enter the world of yeah. punditry, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the other hand, in the, in the absence of – significant information about 
what people in the country are thinking, mm-hmm. you know, it, you know, when they actually walk into the ballot. We'll know a lot more beginning of March, right? Mm-hmm. The absence of that information, we do, you know, the information that we do get from these initial contests um, is maybe not important in the long run, but important for us now and cr- can create their own um, their own um, effects on how people go out yeah. and vote, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that uh, Klobuchar, for example, um, was able to outperform her polls um, indicates that um, people gave her serious thought mm-hmm. and decided mm-hmm. at the last minute yeah. um, after they had been yeah. polled, right, to go ahead and set on her, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And like, well, that's significant, right? Mm-hmm. If she can pull that off in other places, right. if people are taking her more seriously now, then maybe yeah. that indicates something. Yeah. Yeah. And then oh, go ahead. there's an extent to which there's a Schrodinger's cat kind of problem here mm-hmm. with with Nevada, because mm-hmm. we saw Klobuchar outperform her polls in right. New Hampshire. We haven't had a real meaningful poll in Nevada yeah. since early January. And so it might be that people have kind of settled on Amy Klobuchar or maybe that they're looking at her for the first time because of the New Hampshire result. Yeah. And right. we just don't know. And we won't know until Nevadans go to the polls unless we get some real good polling data yeah. in the next right. uh, next week or so. Yeah, the polling data out of Nevada and South Carolina has been sparse. I mean, yeah. Like, you know, well, it's expensive is, to do polls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like South Carolina still has Biden with a big lead on the average poll in real clear politics. But mm-hmm. that's almost certainly not. And did true. you notice that the Bloomberg campaign is is kind of talking up that um, a significant number of, of uh, African-American Democratic voters have swung to Bloomberg? Yeah. 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 They're trying to make they're trying to sell that story. Yeah. Which, of course, um, also I haven't seen big data on that, but. There's also this big story about Bloomberg on, you know, Bloomberg's racial policies with policing. Yeah, that's a problem. A problem for him. So yep. we'll, we'll see how all that plays out. Okay, so we, well, to move this forward, um, if we're saying that people like Sanders and uh, Buttigieg and Klobuchar come out of these first two states as winners, we have to say that the people coming out of these first two states on the other side of the ledger are people like Biden and Warren. Yeah. Right? Um it's not – again, we don't want to read too much into this. We don't want to create too much of a narrative momentum here. Right. Uh, but uh, neither one of them clothed themselves in glory in these first two uh, 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 states. And, um, and although they still could end up doing just fine, Biden still could – has a real legitimate shot at getting a nomination. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look good right now. And the narrative does not look good right now. Well, Biden has never clothed himself in election glory at any point in time, um, you know, outside <laughs> of his own state. He has never – you know, the three times he's run for president, he has never won a primary caucus in the yeah. Democratic Party. Yeah. He's just, you know, not not a great candidate. Yeah. Um, no. And there's a legitimate chance metric. he doesn't do it this time. I mean, like, we'll, we'll see. I think – I think he's he has a, a shot, but yeah, he does have a shot. I think he's in an almost must win for South Carolina. You know, I think just, that's true. Yeah. If he doesn't, I mean, like, I'd be surprised if he wins Nevada. I just don't. I don't know. Nevada's unclear what's going to happen, but I'm going to be surprised if he's the one. But if he if he loses Nevada and he loses South Carolina, it's just not clear to me why people are going to coalesce around his candidacy on Super Tuesday because, especially right. with the narrative out of South Carolina for so long being like he's this is his firewall, this is his state, he's going to do it. He's, you know, the African-American community that loves him. They're a huge part of the Democratic voting electorate. I mean, I just, yeah, if he doesn't do that, I just don't know what he does after that. And then at that point, I mean, like, at what point do you have to get out, right? I mean, do people need to start dropping? Or the Democratic Party ends up in a very similar position to, you know, the Republicans in 2016, right? Where you just, you know, you have 
too many people running, and then you might get stuck with somebody who the party elites would prefer not to have. So. And by that, that you, what you really need is Sanders. Sanders, absolutely. Yeah, right. yeah, I think Sanders is the nightmare scenario for a lot of Democratic party elites, where they think, yep. oh, we're just not right. sure this guy can pull it off, A, and B, we're not sure we want to go down the path that he's trying to lead us down. I mean, to exactly. me, an important question is, you know, does anyone drop out before Super Tuesday, right? So if, you know... Does Biden eke out enough of a victory in South Carolina? He feels like he can keep moving yeah. forward, right? Mm-hmm. If um, Biden finishes out of the top three in South Carolina, I think he pulls the plug. I think he pulls it. Yeah, I hope he does. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. For his, war, I mean, for his but... sake. I mean, because you know, I have, I have to say, like Joe Biden's one of those people that I have many disagreements with, but I have a lot of respect for you know his career, and you'd be sad to just see him flame out for too long. Or you're like, at yeah. some point, you need to just say, "This is let's not embarrass myself." Today. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So. Okay, so let's just talk very briefly. We haven't had a number of any real big names drop mm-hmm. in the wake of New Hampshire. We had some small names drop in the wake Andrew of New Yang Hampshire. Andrew Yang, goodbye, uh, farewell to the Yang gang. Oh, um, but Yang he gang. said, and I, you know what, I gave him a lot of credit. Um, he conducted, a, I, I think, a very classy campaign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he basically said, I've been known all the way through as the math guy. I've been talking about myself as a math guy. Yeah. The math doesn't work. I can't be president this time. Yep. And I thought that was a gracious, yep. thoughtful yep. way of, yep. of of getting out of the race. Yep. Um, and not just Andrew Yang, but also uh, Deval Patrick ended his brief <laughs> and super weird candidacy for the presidency. So um, if what you, were you thinking? If Why? you had said back in, let's say, 2016 that this was going to be Deval Patrick's 2020, yeah. no one would have bought it. Uh, in 2016, Deval Patrick was on a short list of people who were the yeah. hot new names yeah, yeah. to run against Trump in 2020, along with Cory yeah. Booker and Kamala Harris yeah. and a few others, um, Elizabeth Warren, frankly. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And the fact that he got in so late and flamed out so quickly is truly bizarre. Fred Thompson levels of bizarre. <laughs> oh, Fred Thompson did way better than yeah. Deval Patrick. I mean, yeah, he was in there for a while, right? And he actually won, he won some, a, a solid percentage of the yeah. votes. But he didn't win anything, but he, you know. Yeah, it's... Can I... It, it's beyond it's not an insult for Do we Thompson. have any explanation for what happened here? You know, I, yeah, I don't have a good one. <laughs> a fit of I, madness? I, he, I mean, what? A fit of madness. Like, he at some point realized, like, okay, the, you know, we, there's... The minority candidates aren't doing well, which is true, right? There might be an opportunity here for me to appeal to a community that I'm particularly well positioned to speak to but he just didn't i mean you have to have organization you have to have money um did he just think that i'm gonna get in the race and everyone's gonna say oh thank god deval patrick is running and they would just flock to him maybe i i I just yeah this is one of those where like his theory of the case didn't make sense to me he got in the same time as michael bloomberg and the difference is (laughs) bloomberg has 57 billion or whatever Mm -hmm. give or take a few to dump (laughs) what's a billion between friends exactly right and deval patrick does not have He's, you know, 57 billion. I mean, no. if Deval Patrick had 57 billion, he's a much more appealing candidate than Michael Bloomberg. But but he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a big difference. So we lo- we said goodbye to Yang and Patrick. And yep. also, uh, would you like to give a eulogy to Michael Bennett? No one cares quite Bennett, as much about Michael Bennett as you do. He stayed in two primaries and caucuses past where he should have. But, <laughs> but at least he finally realized it. He too can... I just don't know, like, what did he think was going to happen in New Hampshire? It's like, I'm going to hang in there through New Hampshire. Something good's going to happen. Oh, 0.1%. I don't know. Was, I just don't know what goes through these people's heads. Well, can I ask you a question? Is there any strategic reason to sticking around in a, in a presidential primary past the point of reality for other kinds of reasons? Does Michael Bennett not necessarily prove his job prospects for president, but for right. other kinds of things by doing this? I don't. 
I can't I see what it Michael helps. Bennett, but. I can't see what it helps. I mean, I mean, some people it could like raise their profile, right? Because that's what I was way. thinking. Right. Yeah. I mean, so you get like I don't know, people like Beto O'Rourke or or even Andrew Yang to an extent, <laughs> right? I mean, they can yeah. raise their profile yeah. if they're younger. They can set themselves up yeah. for you know yeah. high level office, another presidential run, maybe. Mm-hmm. You got to start somewhere, right? Yep. So, but, but you do that but by Bennett. Some I'm Pusey, not really sure. Yeah. I mean, like, so Yang did that. I mean, I think yeah. he helped himself. He's you yeah. know. He could totally run for another office sometime. He didn't. He ran a very positive, you know, issue-oriented campaign. He didn't I fight think, with anybody. No, he he has. He comes you know, out he on the plus side. Damaged himself. Yeah. People know him now much more. Yeah. He's more respected. I mean, I think that's a. It's a successful campaign in everything other than. Winning, but Bennett right? doesn't change his stature or whatever like, it was. Everyone's I mean, like, oh right, that's right, he ran. Oh yeah, that happened. Or even Deval Patrick, right? I mean, they didn't. And then, really and then they look at the vote total like, oh wow, he really didn't do that. Yeah. Well. You know, so I think uh, you know Yang, Yang at least won some you know some votes. I mean, he, you know, right. he did, wasn't at zero point one. I will so. say, as much as I like many Americans, weary of the yeah. extended period of time by which we select our president and oh, this right. long primary process and this yep. long general election process. One thing I do support is that. Uh, this tells us something about these people's capacity to organize and sustain mm-hmm. movement within yeah. their own organizations. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a skill that will serve them well as commander in chief. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that this long process is a job interview, I do like that part of it. I'm probably sure we can accomplish that in other ways, too. I don't think we need this probably process to this select. Yeah. But um, yeah. someone who can't sustain a movement or someone who sure. gets in um, on a right. whim you know, probably shouldn't be our commander in yeah. chief. Yeah, I mean, it, it. it is a kind of vetting process. You have to have a certain amount of stamina, for one thing, right, yep. just to last that long. And, of course, yep. you know, the presidency is probably one of the worst jobs in the world. Um, you know, it makes you age at a faster rate, literally, right? Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and you, you know, you have to have real organizational chops. You have to have a vision. Yeah. You have to be good at communicating yeah. it. You can't be some, you know, complete flash in right. the pan, right? right? Um, right. So there, there is something to that. It gives us something to talk about. That's true. That's true. Let's talk about something a little bit more poli sci here. So yeah. I want to have you ask you two to evaluate something that's been showing up more and more in the national media. Mm-hmm. And that is the concept of lanes. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the, – the supposition goes like this, that there is a progressive lane, mm-hmm. which is occupied by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who sort of sits on the right-hand side of that lane. He sits mm-hmm. on the left-hand side of that lane. Mm-hmm. And then there is a uh, moderate lane. Uh, which is bunched up with people like Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar and Pete mm-hmm. Buttigieg. And that, that basically there are different sort of lanes for, and, and you might even go further than that and say people like Bloomberg mm-hmm. and Yang are in another lane, which is the political outsider lane, mm-hmm. right? And then, so there are right. different kinds of ways of conceptualizing the field. Is there any validity to this from the voter perspective? Do voters actually think in terms of lanes or are they based more in terms of personality of the of the individuals or policy preferences? What's mm-hmm. driving primary voters? Does the lane concept matter? My quick reaction is probably not. I mean, I don't I don't think this is really how voters think about it at all. I do think they think it's a lot more about personalities. It's about particular Occasionally, it's about particular policies, but it's more about personalities, like who who they find, like, yeah, I'm inspired by that person, or that person seems, you know, like a plausible president to me, or that person saying something that really resonates. Um, and and when you look at their second choice and third choices, I mean, it just doesn't seem to neatly. No, it doesn't. That. Like, 
you know, it's, it's not clear to me that like if Warren drops out, for example, that her support is going to mostly jump to Sanders. I mean, some of them will, but I think, you know, some of them might equally end up with, you know, a Buttigieg or a Klobuchar or a Bloomberg, right? Because this might be like, well, I, I want really, you know, specific policy. I think Michael Bloomberg will carry that out. Mm-hmm. I want some kind of, you know, um, new and exciting, but an intelligent kind of heady vision. And that might be Buttigieg, right? I want a really accomplished woman to be president. I'd be a Klobuchar, right? I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why mm-hmm. they're attaching yep. on to, uh, you know, a candidate. And so I just don't think it, it neatly fits. I mean, maybe this is a little true with Sanders, uh, kind of hardcore believer people, but even some of those people, are, it's more popular. It's popular. So, so yeah. their so second choice might be Trump. Yeah, there's some of them, their second choice is probably Trump. And others is going to be jumping to maybe people people like Pete or somebody like that. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. So it's, well, and then you get weird stuff weird. like, you know, for a lot of, um, you know, Supposed Biden voters yeah. in these early states, their second choice was Sanders, yeah, right? right? Which yeah. is, you know, yeah. like, yeah. which kind of defies this sort of you yeah. know, categorization right. that we want to impose on voters, right? right? So <laughs> I think there is something. Lanes provide, you know, some explanatory power, but not maybe as much as we we might expect. I mean, you can say with. You know, some degree of confidence that, you know, Sanders really does get a significant amount of support from people who classify themselves as very liberal. Beyond that, um, people are voting for all sorts of different reasons. Yeah. And it's and the Biden Sanders thing, too, like like those people who are like second choice Sanders voters who are, you know, supporting Biden. Some of that seemed to be about like, oh, yeah, those are the guys I know. Like, who are these other people? Exactly. Who's Warren? Who's Buttigieg? Who's Klobuchar? Right. But yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, Biden and Sanders. I know those guys. I mean, so sure. They, they can be president because they've been around, right? Yeah. I mean, so you, you have that and then you have, you know, people's perceptions of who they think is most electable, right? Yeah. And that's that's one of the biggest priorities right. um, of the Democratic primary, um, yeah. you know, voting public, right, is who can we right. uh, put up to be Donald Trump? That's our, right. that's right. our priority. We may not agree on most things, yeah. but that's going to be, um, you know, the main um, criteria that we're, we're yeah. using. Well, what we've shown in the past, too, in looking at public opinion, like how people understand that. So they'll say that, right? right. But the way they'll under- they perceive that is very yeah. shaped by who they want to support anyway, right? Right. So if they if they think they should support them or if they think this person has momentum, they'll perceive them as electable right. regardless of whether they are or not. Right, which is why, I mean, these media narratives, even though they're, you know, I mean, wishy-washy and, right. and you know, just infuriating, like they actually do have their own effects. It oh, creates yeah. its own sort of yeah. feedback loop. So it is an mm-hmm. actual Absolutely. political phenomenon yeah. with, with significant real-world impact. Right. Yeah. right. Well, I want to return to um, a core question for political scientists um, later on in this podcast series. By the way, did you guys know what, what today is? Uh, day before Valentine's Day? Well, that's true. Um, but I was thinking the fact that this is actually the 250th podcast on our channel. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I want to turn to in a future podcast on election shock therapy is this whole question about um, – the relative advantages of appealing to moderate voters versus mm-hmm. cultivating turnout within your core base support. Uh, this is a lingering question yeah, from 2016, yeah. and it's going to be a huge question in 2020, and yep. we need to have a long conversation In the general election, that. you're saying. In the general election, yeah. but also I think even in the primaries, in the extent to which like someone like Elizabeth Warren, does she hew to the left and try to take Bernie's right. supporters? Right. Um, or does she sort of drift to the middle and try to compete with people like Buttigieg and and, um, and Biden? But what you guys are saying is if lanes don't really exist and people sort of fixate on the individual rather than mm-hmm. on a sort of a person within an ideological spectrum, then that whole thing is fallacious and she's better off just promoting herself as Elizabeth Warren. 
right. Um, right. rather than trying to nail down a relative position in some kind of ideological spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there might be might be something to that. I mean, Elizabeth Warren has tried over the past, even just over the past few weeks, realize that she's not going to compete. She's not going to peel off Bernie supporters. So she's mm-hmm. going to try to um, switch up and sort of pivot towards the, the middle, so to speak, and, right. and talk about, you know, I'm the only one that can unify the Democratic Party and use that as sort of her um, her her pitch. But, you know, Mayor Pete has been saying that all along, right? And right. so there's also the different... Even beyond lanes, there's how candidates are sort of branding themselves right. and what they're Even Klobuchar is sort of making these noises like, I'm the only one who can peel off Republican voters. They yeah. might, they might yeah. come to, into – right. people, who, people who are conservative right. but don't love Trump would might find me real um, palatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, guys, um, I want to just pepper you at the, at the end here. Of all the things that have happened so far in the Democratic nomination process, again, we're focusing on the Democrats not because that's our that's our purview per se, right. but because the Republican nomination process is a foregone conclusion. Yes. Um, we'll sp- spend a lot more time thinking about the Republican ticket uh, once we get to the general election. Right. But um, for the selectorate process, what is what is the most meaningful thing that you take away now that we're be- we're through two states? What do you take? What do you find meaning in? What do you take away that's meaningful out of this process thus far? It it feels a lot more fluid um, to me <laughs> than it has it in any kind of previous, um, certainly than any previous Democratic nomination in my lifetime. Um, it feels the the biggest analogy is twenty sixteen, right? Except that I don't think Bernie Sanders even has the kind of broad as broad a support as Donald Trump, right? And Donald Trump at least had the advantage of being a little bit more of a kind of political blank slate. Um, hmm. Sanders is less yeah. of that, right? And he's he's much more policy oriented. Um, so it just feels like on the one hand you have this, I mean, he is pretty clearly the national front runner and Pete Bougie is just pl- pretty clearly in second in terms of the early primaries, but you still have Joe Biden hanging out in second in national polling. Michael Bloomberg, who hasn't even been in a primary mm-hmm. is in third in national polling. It just feels really messy because it's like, can Sanders actually pull this off? Um, and if not, who can dislodge him? Uh, and so kind of, build a big enough coalition. So it just feels, to me, very confusing. Um, and then again, the fact that Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar have done well, at least in terms of the expectations game, but they don't seem to have the national organization that some of these others do. Right. Um, also, it makes you wonder, like, okay, so what does that mean? Like, are they going to be able to just sort of use this momentum to turn into votes, or are they going to hurt because they don't really have the kind of ground game that they need? So... It just feels a lot of unknowns. Um, it does make me excited for Super Tuesday. Um, Minnesota should have a, an important role to play this year. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah, I mean, just to riff off of that, I mean, whenever you have this crowded of a field, it just completely confounds your ability to predict what's going to happen. And it also complicates, you know, media narratives that come out of your early contest. It complicates people's decision making when they go to the ballot box. Yep. just complicates everything and makes it messier. And it's not just that the field is crowded, it's that there's no one candidate that's standing head and shoulders above the rest in yeah. any way whatsoever. Right. Um, they all have a different theory of the case for, you know, why they should be president or why they're electable um, or, you know, are the best candidate for the Democratic Party. And it just shows that, you know, I mean, the, the Democratic bench um, really hasn't had any sort of clear front runners, the, um, right. you know, the, basically for the past two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is is potentially very consequential now, and it might make it difficult 
uh, for the Democratic Party to solidify support around any one person, at least for, you know, the first couple of months. And yeah. whether or not that has any impact on, you know, yeah. general election remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, uh, we got to get out of here. Yeah. But um, you can always get in touch with us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. We'll be back in your podcast feed next week. That'll be before the Nevada uh, primary. Yes. Um, we'll, uh, Nevada, we'll see how their Google spreadsheets hold up in, yeah. uh, in Nevada. <laughs> but we'll also be talking about um, – I'd like to look at some fundraising numbers and see how that starts to shake up now that we have a couple primaries underneath our belts. I think that could be interesting to look at too. So we'll, we'll plan on that for next time. Um, on behalf of my colleagues, thanks for listening. Um, get a hold of us. And until next time, go Royals. Go Royals.